Welcome back to the DustCast. I am very excited today to bring you an interview with Dr. Gary M. Burge. When I first decided to put together a podcast, the idea was not for you to just hear my voice all the time, but for me to interview authors and theologians who are making a difference in the area of the cultural context of the Bible. Dr. Burge is a speaker, author, theologian, and professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. He's written several great books that are very accessible to a lay audience, and uh, I'm very grateful for him responding to me so quickly when I requested an interview and being gracious with his time. I know that you will enjoy it, so without further ado, here we go. All right, everyone, well, welcome back to the show. Today we have with us Dr. Gary M. Burge, professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Burge. Yeah, thanks, Jason. It's a real delight to be with you. The, the pleasure is all mine. Your, your books have meant a lot to me as I've uh, researched in this, Thank you. this area. Yeah, it's a real privilege to know that there are <clears throat> strong readers out there like yourself who you know, benefit from these sometimes arcane explanations from scholars <laughs> like me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I may be a bit of an oddball in how much I can enjoy the academic side, but you do write for a, a popular popular audience as well, yeah, so yours right. are pretty accessible. Yeah, we try to write for both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we try to, whenever we're writing things, we always have a target audience in mind. And so, like the book you have, Jesus, the Middle Eastern Storyteller, that is very much designed for lay people and folks without, a, you know, a technical background in the subject. Um, but there are other books you do which, you know, target students or target scholars, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah that's good. I uh, I actually have your New Testament in antiquity, but I have to say I have not uh, gotten through it quite yet. Yep, that's a textbook, right? <laughs> right. Guaranteed to put the average person to sleep if they're <laughs> reading it late at night. But we it's used widely in uh, classrooms around the United States in Christian colleges. Yeah. Yep. Well, I thought maybe we could kind of start with a little history. You you mentioned on your website being in Lebanon when their civil war broke out in the 1970s. Right. What? Tell us a little bit about how that shaped you, how you developed this passion for... Yeah, well, I actually was uh, selected by the University of California to be an exchange student uh, a long time ago, and uh, I was an undergraduate, and uh, they, I, was, I was doing political science, actually, as a major, and religious studies on the side. I was interested in the Middle East just because <clears throat> it was a fascinating place where there's always a war growing, going someplace. And um, I was interested in Islam and its integration to Christianity, and uh, that's a part of that world, you know. So I ended up in Beirut, Lebanon, and um, I was there at the American University for 12 months, and uh, it was a fantastic time. Um, but the Lebanese Civil War broke out while I was there, and we constantly were having classes canceled. We had Muslim holidays and Christian holidays, and it was like a lot of time off. So we traveled, and I ended up going to a, a lot of the Arab countries in the region. And I think for me, at a formative stage in my life, I began to look at my own American culture with a critical perspective. Not in the sense of you're not liking it critical, but in the sense of being more analytical about it. And it, it dawned on me, it's that obvious to us today, I guess, but it dawned on me, sort of in my own development, that each of us are shaped by the culture that we are in. There is no perfect culture, no no ideal culture, but I'm shaped by my American worldview, and people who grew up in the Middle East have their worldview, their culture, and and so therefore I can't presume that my culture in America 
um, has access to understanding better than someone in another culture. So what we need to do is have a cultural conversation, the two of us, and when we do, we begin to understand ourselves and each other better. So um, at the same time I was there, I took classes, religion classes, at um, an Arab-Armenian seminary, believe it or not. And my classmates were Arabic-speaking Christians and Armenian Christians in Beirut, and uh, it was deeply cross-cultural. And then the next real step came to me. I began to ask, well, the New Testament and the, and the Gospels, they come right out of this Middle Eastern culture. So to what extent are the Gospels dependent on the culture of the ancient first century Middle East? And if they are, isn't it difficult to be standing in Chicago 2,000 years later with an American culture and thinking I can understand these Gospels? So what occurred to me is what we call um, a hermeneutical or an interpretive sort of break. I, I began to see that there was a gulf really between my New Testament and the world that I live in today. And when foreigners to the New Testament begin to read them and interpret them, the New Testament, you, you can really make grave mistakes um, because you don't share that culture. So fortunately, today we have a lot of tools that will help us to bridge that gulf, that cultural and time gulf between the first century and our century from that continent to our continent. So we are better equipped today than we ever have been in the history of the church to understand um, what was happening in our original scriptures. But the catalyst for all of the thinking, Jason, came from my experience way back when I was an undergraduate student. I think a common assumption is that the further we get away from something in time, the less we would be able to relate to it. But you say we're That's better, correct. you're better, we're better equipped now mm -hmm. than we have been in the past. What are some of those tools that have helped us more recently? Right. Uh, well, for instance, in the last uh, 100 years, we've had the birth of anthropology. That would be a really uh, the study of culture. And we have specialists who go into um, uh, the world of, uh, of antiquity and they apply the principles of anthropology to what remains of the ancient world. And that has just become a really important discipline to help us understand um, what's happening. Uh, a guy like Bruce Molina is a good example. Um, he wrote a book, um, The New Testament World is a technical book. Another is called Windows on the World of Jesus. That's an easy-to-read book. But Bruce Molina is a cultural anthropologist who... Um, works at the University of Nebraska, and what he does is he reconstructs 2,000-year-old um, ancient Eastern uh, Mediterranean culture. Another guy is uh, Ken Bailey, a great New Testament scholar who has written a book, for instance, um, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Um, these are people who have deep experience with anthropology and with the world of the ancient, ancient world. And they are able to help us understand what the scriptures are saying to us in a way that we might not otherwise. So, yeah, we've got books. We have a lot of books today. <laughs> and you studied under Dr. Bailey uh, in Beirut, didn't you? I did. Yeah, when I was in Beirut, he was actually one of the professors at the Neary School of Theology where I was a student. <clears throat> and then we have kept up over the years. Um, today he's in his mid-80s, and uh, we... Uh, um, we're on the phone Sunday for an hour. So um, we have kept up a very long relationship, and uh, he's a great scholar and a privilege to know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I've actually read uh, Windows on the World of Jesus by Bruce Molina. It's an interesting approach because uh -huh. he writes all of these sort of short little fictional accounts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was That's gonna... a very anthropological. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and your latest book, at least the, the one that I've read the most recently, I guess, is uh, A Week in the Life of a Roman Centurion, which is also a right. sort of a fictional yep. narrative. Um, exactly. Uh, That's, mm -hmm. how, how did you decide to to write fiction that seems very different well oh it's totally different but <clears throat> what we're okay so the challenge is this um, you, you're speaking to an audience and you're saying to them look you've got to have some background of the culture history politics of of the first century if you understand the Bible well in church usually we just talk about the Bible in church and people want to have it explained that's fine but you, when you begin just giving people background information all by itself, they find it pretty tedious. I understand that. So fiction enables you to um, sort of reconstruct the first century world in an entertaining, fun way. And you can come away um, learning things about what that society looked like. So um, InterVarsity came to me and asked, you know, if, that, if I thought I could do it. I, I foolishly said, oh, that'll be easy. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I did, um, here's what the project is, is that we create an entirely fictional story. And then in the chapters, we put sidebars. Those are little blocks of text which explain why the characters are doing this or that. And then the... Um, the fictional story, the arc of the story, follows a character. In this case, I did a Roman centurion, and I actually move him from a war up in Syria, and my goal is, is to move my character all the way to Capernaum, and at the end of the book, I wanted him to meet Jesus, and I wanted him to be that Roman centurion in Capernaum that Jesus uh, heals his servant. So I give him a name. I make him a real centurion. This guy was a tough character. So my centurion, he loves uh, beer and prostitutes and blood sport. <laughs> um, but that's a real centurion. Yeah. And so my hope is somebody reads this and they go, oh, that's what it was like to be in the Roman army. Yeah. That's the goal. So really, it's kind of cultural anthropology in disguise. I think it's a great approach for the average Christian in the pew, so to speak. I mean, it makes it very accessible. Yeah. I, I remember when Miriam starts to sing Psalm 22 over Tullus as he's about to die, and it, it, right. you can think about Jesus saying those same verses on the cross in a different way than I think when we just right. read it from our context. Oh, yeah, yeah. When you just lift a, a something like that, a psalm, out of context, or Jesus' words on the cross even. Yeah, they lose so much. They lose a great deal. Well, so let's dive into a couple examples of how this context can change the way we view things in the Bible. Um, you had mentioned Jesus, the Middle Eastern storyteller, which is a, a part of your ancient context, right. ancient faith series. And in the introduction of that series, you mentioned that in the past few hundred years, Western Christians have kind of abandoned seeing faith as a communal exercise. Right. We're, we're much exactly more right. individualistic. But uh, well, right. I think we're so individualistic, we don't even know how to assess that. Think I mean, what, what would it mean yeah. for us to be more communal in our faith? Right. It's sort of like we sort of live with uh, themes which are so central to our identity and thinking that we really don't know how to think otherwise. Um, let's just sort of take a different kind of theme and it'll make sense. 
um, this idea of democracy or egalitarianism or everyone gets one vote, um, we have lost any notion of the divine right of kings. <laughs> we don't have any idea that there is a sort of class-based hierarchy that God has put in place and it stands above us. We just don't think like that. We just think everybody should be equal, right, Jason? Right, yeah. Yeah, So, but you go back three or 200 years in time in Europe, and you would see exactly thinking like that. People would just assume that God has assigned us to have certain classes. Well, anyway, um, that is true of everything from economics to political organization, you name it. How we sort of view ourselves in society is another matter. Um, the Enlightenment, think here, late 1700s, early 1800s, um, was kind of the birth of confidence in human reason. And we believed, what the Enlightenment writers believed, is that um, humans actually have the capacity to use their own mind, their own thinking, and your, your own autonomous identity to acquire what you need to live a successful life, to understand the world around you. And so what you have is the birth of not just uh, a romance with the human mind, but you have the birth of uh, a sort of an extreme individualism that sets us apart from the other authority structures around us. So I don't need to go to my priest to understand God. I don't need to go to that book even to understand whatever. Um, I don't even need to go to the king any longer because I don't think God has placed this king on his throne. I'm really seeing myself as an autonomous individual. Well, just let that marinate for 200 years. And what you have today is um, the average human living a reasonably solitary life in which I believe that I can think through every issue and I can um, come about my own opinions. And my opinion matters just as much as your opinion, Jason. Yeah. Um, and if you look on the Internet with all the blogs and the comments and everything, we now see in the Internet the rampant, chaotic world that <laughs> that creates. So a specialist in Middle Eastern studies may have an essay on the Internet, and then 200 people with no experience whatsoever think that they can comment on it. That's a kind of absurdity that we have founded ourselves in. Anyway, um, to be an intelligent person today is to be a critical thinker who stands apart from his or her subject and is able to analyze it autonomously. To be an educated person 2,000 years ago is to stand on the shoulders of who came before you and to be in conversation with the elders who have taught you. So it would have seemed presumptuous for me to strike out on my own um, and just live autonomously. No, you live inside of your community, your tribe, your family, your clan. You take up the occupation of your father. You, you, you are faithful to the village in which you live. For Paul's entire life, even though Paul traveled all over the Mediterranean, his life, he was always a citizen of Tarsus, mm. and he knew that. When he said, I'm a citizen, he knows he's a citizen of Tarsus. So, um, yeah, so it is a worldview that says, when I'm thinking new thoughts, I need to be in conversation with others and subordinate myself frequently to others' thinking. Today, um, my students often think that their opinions really could live independently of any scholar. So 
that's just one example. I know that was a long-winded explanation, probably too long. But yeah, no, no, that, that's helpful. I, and our cultures have changed so dramatically. Um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, completely. When I first started really trying to di dive into this type of study, I think I really wanted to adopt a more bi biblical worldview. How, you know, how can I stop being so Western right. and be more bi biblical <clears throat> in my view? Um, right which I, I think there's still some merit to that, but it was interesting to me, one of the other quotes from the introduction to your series, you say um, that this does not mean that the culture of the biblical world enjoys some sort of divine approval or endorse, endorsement. Right, exactly. And yeah. so talk a little more about that. I mean, we need to understand the culture, but the culture right. itself isn't actually necessarily better. No, no. God just simply, <clears throat> when God reveals himself in history, he has to employ and has to exploit the culture which is already there. So it doesn't mean that in some manner the way people lived um, in that day, for instance, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, women shouldn't braid their hair. Well, does that mean we don't want women braiding their hair today? What Paul is doing is appropriating a cultural convention in his day, and he's trying to say something which they interpreted 2,000 years ago that we would see differently today. So it doesn't mean that, you know, the cultural reflexes of the first century have to be our reflexes. You and I live in our own time and place. And just as God loves every nationality in the world, God is interested in every culture of the world and how it evolves and changes. So Asian culture and Western culture, each culture has its own merits. So what I want to do as an interpreter of the Bible is to go back in time. I want to be a time traveler, and I want to be an archaeologist, a literary archaeologist. And I, I look at these texts, and I try to understand these texts the way people originally understood them. And then what I want to do is extract from those texts the timeless message, which is sort of embedded in the culture of that first century. And then I can take that timeless message with me into my world. And honestly, Jason, that means I will have to clothe, I'll have to reclothe that message into something that makes sense for today. Yeah, that, that's so good. Let, let me give you an, yeah, so let me give you an example. I mean, it says, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. That is nonsensical because the idea, well, what is a cross? We have kept it alive as an idea, but we've turned it into jewelry. Take up your cross. What does that mean? It's a form of brutal sacrifice, or I'm sorry, uh, a death execution in the first century. He dies as a sacrifice on the cross. But So what I have to do is I have to, I sort of have to extract an idea out of take up your cross and it has to do with self-sacrifice, your willingness to sort of empty yourself of, 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 of everything that you have and lift that across the centuries and then ask, what does it mean in the 21st century to carry a cross? If it means walking down the street with a wood thing <laughs> on my shoulder, I think I've missed the point. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how to find the point. I, you know, I heard you talking a little right. bit about how to extract kind of the, the key messages, right. you know, the meaning. And in um, Jesus, the Middle Eastern storyteller, you dedicate it to Dr. Bailey, who taught you how to read a right. parable. And then you teach us how to read a parable. And one of the things that really stood out the most to me was um, 
in how to find the point. Because I think we're always right. looking to teach one more Bible class, one more sermon, and we've got to dissect the stories to find a new thing. Everybody always right. wants one more new little detail. And, and we get into the minutiae. But you say that that right. can be dangerous. And, and instead of looking sure, at yeah. every little detail, we should look at the crisis of the parable. That's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I tell my students that, Go ahead, Jason. Well, Sorry. I was just going to say, how does that work? Like, how do we know what the heart of a parable is when we read it? Oh, that's the challenge. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like telling a joke in the, um, uh, in the 21st century. Um, unless you and I share a lot of cultural assumptions, you'll never get the humor in my joke. It's like looking at a political ad that you'll see in the newspaper um, where you have a cartoon, you know, that is sort of an exaggerated feature of some political character. And these are all to be deciphered. They're codes. All of these images on the political cartoon, they're codes, and we have to decode them. But you can only do that if you have the keys to the code. Um, So when it comes to a parable, I've got to understand how a parable, this kind of storytelling, worked in the first century And it so happens what you're doing is sort of spinning a story like the parable of the prodigal son or something. You're sort of spinning out a story and um, the details of the story really are a setup. That's the idea. They're a setup for you and you'll begin to feel the drama of the story if you can hear it like a first century person. But this is what the, the New Testament delights in or the first century world delighted in. They look for what I call a crisis or a slap or Um, I sometimes call it a spring in a box. Hmm. I hand you a box, you open it carefully, you're excited about it, you like the wrapping and the ribbon, and then, boom, the spring comes flying out and it shocks you. So inside of these parables, what scholars have learned, that most of them, you, you read them through, and the point of the parable is not the detail. The point of the parable is moving me toward a point of crisis. There was a man who was very rich, and he built barn after barn after barn after barn, and then he said, well, take up your life of leisure, make yourself iced tea, and have a good time. (laughs) And then that night, the Lord comes to him and says, tonight your soul is required of you. Now, there is the spring in the box right there. Um, The assumption of life is that God is blessing me. He has an assumption, a theological assumption, that when God blesses you, you prosper materially. And therefore, he is right where he is supposed to be, and then he dies. So, what am I supposed to think about the imminent possibility of my death, given that most of my life is about accumulation of things, of money and things? So, um, what happens is that we don't want to take the details of the parable like don't build barns. <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to. We, we just leave those alone. Let them. Let the drama. Let it sort of wind itself up, and then we need the help of experts to let us see where that slap or that spring in the box is. Now, once I understand what that is, okay. So I could die tonight. What does that mean about how I live today? Now what I begin to do is think theologically about that crisis point. Yeah. That's where the work is to be done. Yeah. So scholars have worked on things like the parables for decades, for centuries. But today in the last 50 years, we've said, this is what you have to discern. Mm. But you've got to get in touch with the culture of the first century to discern it rightly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most, I think, 
are pretty short stories that have a pretty obvious crisis point. Yeah. Um, you mentioned The Prodigal Son, which is all, sort of a two-part right. story. And right. I think a lot of us love that story because it reminds us that God is always willing to accept us back. And, it, you know, it's a very welcoming, loving story. Um, but in your book, you, you're sure to point out that there's also a challenge in there, that there is part two right. of the older brother. And he sim uh -huh. seems to reflect the religious community that does not want to risk letting the unrighteous back in. They may pollute that's us. Right. Um, and that's the point. <laughs> that's the punch right there. Right. Yep. Which which is hard because, you know, we, we like to say things like love the, the sinner, hate the sin. And, but I think we're only comfortable with that when we're really loudly shouting how much we hate the sin, you know, and, and focusing right. on exactly. how much we, we hate the choices people yeah. make. But you, right. you say that uh, it's a distinguishing feature of Jesus's entire ministry that he refuses to acknowledge the premise that by accepting sinners, you accept their sin. Right, exactly right. So, so yeah, so that's Jesus is accused. That's why he's accused of, of accepting too many sinners. He hangs out with lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes. He, you know, it's amazing. He, no, he he takes social risks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the parable of the prodigal son, I think, is is really uh, a surprising parable to a lot of people, because it's of course one of three parables in Luke 15. Um, the one coin lost off of a string of ten, one sheep lost out of a you know a flock of a hundred, and we always like to think about the one lost one, and we're so happy that they come home, they repent, they're embraced, they're restored. Jesus wants to know what about the ninety-nine sheep? What about the nine coins that never left? Mm. Is it possible that those who who, who don't leave? who stay on the string, is it possible that they could have impediments to their to a wholesome spirituality that we don't recognize? So in the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son is just like the sheep and the coin. He just comes back, and that's easy. Yeah. But the spring in the box is, oh my gosh, the older son who has always been quote-unquote righteous, he is as far into the far country as his younger brother. But he doesn't recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> there are a lot of really great things, Jason, that are hidden inside of the of the Gospels. A lot of fabulous things. Yeah. Um, we just need to read them with fresh eyes. That's yeah. what we have to do. Well, so I know we're getting near time. Let's talk for maybe just a couple minutes about how the average Christian in the pew can do a better job of that. Um, right. And, and well, I'll, I'll start with one that is maybe not easy for for everyone to do, but I've been able to travel to the Holy Lands a couple times, and I found that just right. being there in the location made a huge difference. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah. as I tried to um, get other people interested in going, sometimes you get the pushback of, you know, why do I need to go somewhere like that? Jesus is in my heart, right? right. And, I've, and I've got the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the Bible right, right. here. And, and so what would you say to that? I mean, mm -hmm. what is the benefit of, of actually being in the land? Well, um, some people actually like to call the Holy Land the fifth gospel. That's a, a very old, centuries-old phrase that has been used. And the idea is, is that um, the closer that I can get to the original context of a story, the more it will make sense to me. It's like if you read Gone with the Wind and you've never been to the South, <laughs> will you really be able to understand fully Gone with the Wind? Well, yeah, I can understand a lot of it, but, you know, you really gain something when you actually go there. 
So when it comes to going to the, the, the Holy Land, you are actually putting yourself physically in greater proximity to the context. So you have Jesus in your heart, you've got your scriptures, but um, I don't think either of those two experiences will ever tell you how big the Sea of Galilee is. Mm. Um, they'll never tell you how close Bethlehem is to Jerusalem. Um, you'll never be able to imagine um, where the Mount of Olives was, where Jesus ascended. You'll never have any idea of where Jesus was crucified or what his tomb looked like. So <clears throat> I think those are all very helpful exercises. Um, but the other helpful exercise is uh, acquiring the right tools. That really is what it is. And um, I think there are some great study Bibles that are out there uh, today. And, um, I, and I think those are the things that we can point people to. I, I really do. Uh, Zondervan, for instance, uh, to, to do a little plug here, um, <laughs> has got a new one. It's a contextual study Bible, I think it's called. It just came out this year. My friend John Walton is one of the editors of it. John is a great contextual Old Testament scholar. And uh, it's enormous. It's like, I don't know, 1,900 pages or something. It's crazy. But it's like an encyclopedia. Yeah. And the bottom third of every page explains a lot of this. So a layperson really ought to go out and buy a really great reference Bible. Uh, you won't carry it to church. It's just too heavy. But you put it on your desk, and when you're reading the scriptures, you can look over and say, oh, that's what it means. All right. Well, uh, it, it's been a pleasure, Dr. Burge, speaking with you today. Yeah, I really appreciate the time. Great. Yeah, great. Great to be with you, and uh, great to be with your audience. All right. Well, thanks, thanks a lot. Me. Yep. Have a good one. Mm -hmm. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. That wraps up our third episode here at the DustCast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Be sure to check out Dr. Burge's books. I will put notes on the ones we mentioned on theDustCast.com. If you like what you hear here, the three best things you can do for me would be to subscribe on iTunes, leave me a rating, and leave me a review. Until next time, God bless.